So we are having a service tonight where we're going to emphasize the idea of Thanksgiving. And the way we're going to do that is uh, we're going to uh, be focusing on one psalm in particular. There, there are so many passages throughout the Bible that emphasize and that describe and talk about the, the idea of Thanksgiving. But um, what I wanted to do tonight is really just camp in one spot, which is Psalm 118. Psalm 118, I think... Uh, covers a, a variety of different aspects of the giving of thanks and why we should do that and uh, what God means in our lives, even through difficulties and struggles. And, uh, and so we're going to have a, a series of devotional thoughts kind of walking through that psalm. And in between those, we'll have different songs that we sing and uh, we'll have uh, prayers that are offered uh, for Thanksgiving. But uh, through this, we'll be thinking about the idea of thanks. We'll be giving thanks. We'll be reading a psalm of Thanksgiving. We'll be singing songs of thanksgiving and offering prayers of thanksgiving as we remember the good things that God has done for us. So as we do that, um, turn with me to Psalm 118, if you're not already there. And we're going to start off by reading the first four verses. Psalm 118, the first four verses. It begins, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, his loving kindness is everlasting. So if you're looking for a reason to give thanks to God, to praise God, one of those really good reasons is that his loving kindness is everlasting. Now that, that word loving kindness, uh, it's one I've, I know I've talked about it before. Uh, in, in, in the Old Testament, if you were to summarize God's relationship with Israel with one word, I would choose this word right here. Uh, my Bible says loving kindness. Uh, a lot of other Bibles will translate it in different ways. Uh, some of them will say something like mercy, maybe. Some of them will say uh, steadfast love. And I like steadfast love because I think the idea of this word is that there is a loyal, enduring love, a love that remains even in spite of hardship, a love that remains even in spite of rebellion, and a love that even time cannot uh, dissuade or cannot lessen. That's why the phrase is repeated, his loving kindness is everlasting. It's everlasting. His loving kindness is something you can count on no matter what is going on in your life, no matter where you live or what time period you live in. In fact, way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, God appears before Moses at a time when Israel has, they've entered into a covenant with God there at the base of Mount Sinai. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain to get some instructions for the tabernacle. And in that short period of time that he's back up on the mountain, they turn against God and they build this golden calf. And like they immediately turn their backs on the God who just rescued them from Egypt and just fed them in the wilderness and just gave them victory over their enemies and just gave them water from a rock. And like all of these things that God has done throughout Exodus, he has proven to be their provider who loves them and cares for them. And, and then he gives them this book of the covenant and Moses reads it to all of them. And, and in that book of the covenant, there are a few things that stipulate how to live in the presence of God. And one of those is not to put any other gods before him. And another one is not to make any other gods. Those are like the first two actually that, that are given. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain and that's, that's the first things they do is they make another God. And so God has a choice at this point. And he, he mentions this choice. He could potentially go find a new group. They entered into a covenant. 
And then they broke that covenant. It's like if you have a business deal with someone and the first week they failed to hold up their end of it, you might not want to stay in that deal. And, and as soon as they break their written, like their agreement, you're free to get out of it. But instead of getting out of it, God has Moses write the book of the law again, and God re-enters into a covenant. Why did he do that? Why did he choose to stick with them rather than find another people or give up on them or abandon them? It's because his steadfast love or his loving kindness is everlasting. It's because God loved them, and even in their disobedience, he continued to love them. And so he describes himself this way to Moses. He appears to Moses, and he says, The Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and truth. And he maintains steadfast love for thousands, and he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he'll by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth. And in that, you get this contrast between steadfast love, which goes on forever. It's for thousands and thousands. And the contrast of that is his punishment, which is three and four which is basically a short-lived punishment versus a steadfast love that endures forever. In fact, one of the things that's interesting is that steadfast love becomes the recipe for worship and praise for Israel in a lot of their songs and in a lot of their singing, Uh, like Psalm 118. They take that idea of God's steadfast love and they sing about the fact that God's steadfast love remains forever. That's something to give thanks for. Uh, The first verse of this uh, psalm, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. If you look at the very last verse in verse 29, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love is everlasting. It, this is, it's, it's an inclusio. It's, a, it's bracketed. It has the, the beginning and the ending are the same, and that helps you uh, know how to read everything in the middle. Everything in the middle is supporting that idea that we can give thanks to God because he is good and is always good, and his steadfast love for us endures forever. And, and so as, um, as they begin to sing and to worship with this idea, but one other just quick note. If you quickly look at Psalm 136, you'll see that this is a common idea uh, that that, uh, Israel uses to praise God. Psalm 136 is 26 verses, and if you look at how every one of those verses ends, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. It's repeated over and over and over and over again because there's something you can always praise God for, and it's that his loving kindness is everlasting. And so as Psalm 118 begins, we just read the first four verses, and the way this would probably be sung is that you would have someone who would... um, leading the congregation, say something along the lines of, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And the people would respond back for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then that next verse, he says, oh, let Israel say, and he calls on all of Israel and they respond back. His loving kindness is everlasting. And then he gets specific in verse three. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, and those who are of the priestly house of Aaron, they shout back, his loving kindness is everlasting. And then he says, let those who fear the Lord, which is probably a reference to Gentiles who uh, were not born into the covenant, but through the fear of God have become obedient. 
they shout back his loving kindness. And it's a way of including every different group and demographic and all of the people into this collective thanksgiving to God for his steadfast love, which always remains and always endures. And so as we begin this devotional service, let's remember that we have reason for thanks. We have reason for thanksgiving. No matter what time you live in or where you are, God's steadfast love, our reason for thanksgiving, is ever-present and always enduring. And no matter who you are, no matter what group you're a part of, you are invited to collectively gather together. Whether you're the house of Aaron, the Gentiles who feel the Lord, or all Israel, or anyone sitting here today, you are invited to gather together into this thanksgiving. You are always welcome to thank God. And we will do so here today. Uh, If you would, please be standing for our first song. Well, what does the steadfast love of the Lord do for us? Uh, What does God's steadfast, enduring, ever-present, and everlasting love do? Well, when you look at verses 5 through 9, I think you see some of the benefits of the steadfast love of God. And as you look at this, what you'll see is when God loves you, and God is a mighty, powerful friend. Uh, If you're looking at at this world and you're considering those who are against you, you can take hope and courage and comfort in knowing that you have a God who is mightier than any enemy, enemy out there who is for you and who loves you. And you also have this reminder that because of that, you shouldn't go putting your trust in men or human princes or governments or kings or whatever they'll probably let you down. They're awfully inconsistent, but God is someone who is always steady and always secure. As we look at verses 5 through 9, we read, from my distress I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. As you look at this, God is the primary helper in our lives. As a matter of fact, he is the sole source of absolute help that we can go to. Uh, That's not to say that humans can't help you. Humans can help you. And I think there's a beautiful verse in verse 7 where he says, the Lord is for me among those who help me. Sometimes when you are in dire need and you're among friends who love you and care for you and help you, the Lord is there and present. It is the source of that help there for which you give thanks. And because of that, you can stand in the day that your enemies turn against you. That's why the rest of that verse says, therefore I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. Those who might despise or hate you, that's not a fun thing for anyone to endure. But if God is for you and you're among those who help you, then what can man do to you? As a matter of fact, if God is for you, you have all that you'll ever need. If God is for you, you have the ultimate source of hope and help that this life can offer. That's not to say that there will never be any distress. Verse 5 says, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. But that even through and in our distress, the Lord will meet us there and be present with us. And because of that, it's better to take refuge in him than it is any man. It's better to take refuge in him, verse 9, than even to trust in princes. God is our greatest source of help in this world because his loving kindness for us, his steadfast love for us, is greater than any other source, and it endures 
forever. The year was 1714. Queen Anne of England was on her deathbed. She had no son, no daughter, who would succeed her to the throne, and Isaac Watts was very worried. The regime before her had placed his father in prison, and as a young child, his mother had taken him uh, to the prisons to visit, and he had no idea what was going to happen when the new regime came back in. And he went home uh, with great care and great worry and turned to God's word, and this is the verse uh, that he went to. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. And he wrote what many have called uh, a, a hymn about time. But uh, without taking a lot of time, I just love the comments by the, uh, the book of hymnals uh, regarding this story and this hymn before we sing it. Uh, but they write, uh, God stands above time, and in him are all our anxieties that can be laid to rest. When the events of the day bring worry and concern, the God of the ages remains our eternal refuge. In a good number of ways, Psalm 118, uh, rich, written uh, in ancient Israel, it's, a, it's an anonymous psalm. We're not told exactly who wrote it. But it was a psalm that offered a tremendous amount of comfort and uh, even theological uh, inquiry uh, and, and exploration uh, by early Christians. A number of passages from Psalm 118 are quoted in the New Testament. One of them we just read during the last uh, devotional uh, that was just given uh, in verse 6 that says, The Lord is for me, I will not fear what can man do to me. That psalm is quoted in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. And what's fascinating about that is it's quoted right after the uh, Christians there that have received that letter are told not to put their love or their trust in money, uh, but rather to put their hope and their trust in God because he's always going to be with us, even though money might not be. And if he is for us, then who can be against us? He's, he's with us. And so in a context where earlier in the book of Hebrews, we find out that those Christians had had their property taken by others. He says, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have a lasting reward and a better one. If they have lost money because of enemies and because of persecution for the sake of Christ, one of their great comforts was knowing that even though people are trying to take everything from me, even though we're going through distress... If the Lord is for us, who can be against us? The Lord is our helper. What can man do to me? Well, as you continue to read Psalm 118, you see the extent and how great that idea remains. Because it's not only like an individual enemy or something like that might be out to get us. When you look at verse 10, he says, The nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees in verse 12. They were extinguished as the fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You, you can see the repetition of thought there, but some of the, the words that are, that are uh, repeated are, they were surrounding me. It's like, 
If you were to think of what's the biggest enemy you can imagine, uh, he doesn't just say the people who, you know, are rude to me at the workplace or something like that. Like, these are the nations of the earth have gathered around and are trying to go against him. And where else can he go? He goes to the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. That's where he finds hope, and that's where he finds assurance, because the Lord is his helper. So what can man do to me? What can a thousand men, what can nations of men do to me as long as the Lord is with me? And so he takes confidence in the fact that even though he was surrounded like bees, they were extinguished. God was able to come to the rescue. Verses 13 and 14 describes what that rescue uh, is when he says, You pushed me violently so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Why is it that we don't put our hope and trust in men and in princes? Well, because they're often a part of the nations. You know, they're often the ones that are surrounding. Uh, but God is the one who, even when you're being pushed down, will catch you and help you up. God is the one who can become your strength, your song, and your salvation. And just think of those words right there. Think of how often, think of how difficult it would be to get through life without the hope and the assurance of the love of God. And think about how, I love verse 14 when he says, the Lord is my song. I mean, that's what we're actually doing here tonight as we gather. And in between each of these lessons, we're singing songs to God. Remember, as we sing, that we're singing to God because he has become the song that we sing. He has become the only the only thing worthy of our praise and adoration and our singing. And it's because he is the only one, in verse 14, who can become our salvation. You know, this world can attack us in a lot of ways. We can suffer a lot of distress. You might be surrounded by something right now. It might not be nations. That's what he's talking about. Uh, you might be surrounded by a different kind of stress, a different kind of worry, a different kind of uh, potential problem or attack. And there is the temptation to put your trust in men or to think that you're alone. But what this psalm reminds us is that men are not going to be your ultimate source of salvation and that you're not alone because thanks be to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And it's with you now. It's with you even through hardships. It's, even, it's with you even when you're surrounded and you feel like you're sinking. It's even when the bees are all around and you think, what am I going to do? It's with you even when the nations are surrounding you. No matter what it is that is surrounding you, in the midst, they're with you as your strength and your song and your only hope of salvation is a God who loves you very much. And that is something for which we could all give thanks. Let us go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, our, our hearts just overflow tonight. Uh, we have been so blessed, and you've, uh, you've given us so much. Uh, Father, we sometimes complain because we have to put up with aches and pains and pills and shots, but, Father, we have, we have your love, and it fills us, and we can share it with others. Uh, in this special season, we pray that you, as people travel, you keep them safe, as families come together, that you would be the topic of their conversation. Uh, Father, we just love you so much and, and uh, want to thank you. We just, 
we just are full of your love and, and uh, thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mentioned that Psalm 118 uh, is picked up uh, by the writers of the New Testament and uh, in a number of passages from this psalm are quoted and we'll see a couple more of them uh, here as we go through the night. But something else that's interesting about Psalm 118 is that it also looks backwards and it quotes from earlier passages. In fact, the last passage we just read in verse 14 says, The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Look with me at Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 1 and 2. It says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled to the sea. And then notice verse 2. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. Notice how that exact verse goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 15. Now, what is happening in Exodus chapter 15? Well, if you've read through Psalm 118, remember he's talking about nations surrounding me and and God came and extinguished them? Well, Exodus 15 is the song of praise and thanksgiving and shouting for joy that Israel engaged in after crossing the Red Sea. They were surrounded by the sea on one side and the nations and in Egypt on the other. And Egypt and Pharaoh and the armies were chasing after them, trying to catch them and to destroy them or to bring them back as slaves. And they felt completely surrounded and trapped. And at that point, there was nothing they could do to save themselves. They couldn't turn around and take on the army. They couldn't get across the sea by themselves. They were trapped and they were surrounded. They couldn't put their trust in men. Pharaoh was untrustworthy. He had said they could go numerous times. And then he went back on his word. One of the things that I think is important to note about Psalm 118 is it's echoing an earlier story that we know about. And a lot of the key ideas and even some of the key verses in this psalm come from the story of the Exodus. The story where the nations rose up against Israel and they surrounded them and they tried to entrap them and ensnare them and they had enemies and they were hated by these people. And there, was, there were kings and there were princes, but you couldn't trust them because they kept turning their back on them and they kept being dishonest. But who was it whose steadfast love was with them when their children were being killed, when they were made uh, miserable slaves, and when they were uh, in, in the wilderness and they had no way to defend themselves, or when Egypt was chasing after them? It was God's steadfast love throughout the entire story that ends up giving them hope and security and salvation. And so after this dramatic demonstration of the power of God's right arm in in defeating the armies of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at the time, in a miraculous way through the Red Sea, they can't help but sing praises to God because he is their strength, he is their song, and he is their salvation. As you look at at, uh, Exodus 15, notice verse 6. Where it says, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And you can see it again in verse 12. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Verse 13. In your loving kindness or your steadfast love, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. 
You can see even in the song, in way back in the book of Exodus, all of these uh, words about extolling and exalting how great God is. God has become their song. God is their strength. God is their salvation. His right hand gave them the victory, and it was because of his loving kindness that was for his people. Well, back at Psalm 118, I want to read the next couple of verses here and see if they sound familiar at all. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. That's a tiny little chiasm there where you have the first and the last phrases are the same with that middle ver- like phrase in the middle kind of being the, the central key to the whole thing. But they all make reference to this right hand of the Lord. The right hand of the Lord is symbolic of his power and majesty and might as a ruler and as someone who can save and judge. Well, that's what they were singing about in Exodus 15. And that's what they're singing about here as they remember that the saving power of God that you can see in Exodus 15, that's not just a neat story from the past. But that same active and powerful and living God is alive when Psalm 118 is written. It's alive in the days of Jesus. And that same God is alive in our lives as well. For that reason, he is always worthy and deserving of our thanksgiving. In verse 15, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation. As people consider the greatness of God, they shout thanksgiving from their tents and they shout it throughout their lives. When we gather together and we sing these songs, we're, in, we're engaging in that act with them. Verse 17, he continues, I will not die but live and I will tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open the gates of righteousness, and I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. That idea, it's it's at the very beginning, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. It's the very last verse. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And it's right there in the middle where he says in verse 19, I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. I love the picture of righteousness being gates that you can walk through. God, through his, uh, through his law, uh, as the psalmist is considering, God, through the teachings of Jesus and through the life he offers up, he opens up gates of righteousness that when you enter into, you have the righteous protection of the Lord. Now, there are things, yes, that men can take away from you, but even Jesus, as he recognizes that, says, don't fear those who can destroy your body but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul. There's, there's a sense in which, yes, you can have enemies, nations can surround you, you can have people who hate you, and you can suffer because of that. And it might not even be people. Again, whatever circumstances in your life that is causing these things, and yet God is more powerful than every one of those things. God offers a security from those things. There's a limit to what they can do to you, but there's no limit to the salvation that God offers. Uh, The worst thing someone can do to you is take your life. And yet, even through that, God has the promise of victory over death and the promise of resurrection. And so as we consider the mighty hand of God, he not only can help us in this life, but even if this life comes to an end, he will help us through that as well. There is no limit to the the offer that God has of salvation, even death itself cannot take it away. So we give thanks to God for his loving kindness because it's always present. 
We give thanks to God because he is always worthy of our trust, even when other humans aren't. We give thanks to God because he is our source and our hope of salvation. And we give thanks to God because his mighty arm is exalted in our favor. In verse 22 through 29, the psalm concludes saying, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It, verse 23, something uh, happens here as the psalm begins to conclude. In verse 23, it says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Throughout, the pronouns have been uh, singular. Uh, you know, you can go back to verse 5. In my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me. And uh, verse 6, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. And everything has been singular. But right here as we get to the conclusion, we are reminded this isn't only about thanksgiving from the perspective of an individual who may have been helped. This is also a communal thanksgiving. This is a thanksgiving uh, for the, the household of Israel. Remember, it started off with this idea of everyone calling out to God and giving thanks for the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then we get the example of this person who has been through some hardship. He's been surrounded by enemies. He's been surrounded by the nations. Yet the Lord has caused him uh, to, to come through unscathed. And God has saved him. And God has been his helper. And God has been with him. And now we're seeing this idea of this being a, a communal idea that everyone who has been saved by the Lord can rejoice in and can sing in as well. He says in verse 24, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords and with horns of the altar. You are my God. I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. As the psalm concludes, several key ideas uh, come forth. One is that switch from the individual to the communal in the thanksgiving of God. But another thing we see, and I love the idea of verses 22 and 23. Because sometimes as we see life and we expect it to go, God has plans that we would never have thought possible. And what to us might look like distress, God could often use to bring about something we had never expected. And you see this type of thing happen throughout. You see it in the life of Joseph. Remember, Joseph's brothers rejected him. And yet God used Joseph for the saving of many people. You see it with Israel. You know, in the world's view, they had been rejected. They were slaves of Egypt. They were nothing. And yet God saw that nation that looked like a worthless, nothing nation, and he made them his key covenant people. You see it most clearly with Jesus himself, who died on a cross, who to the world would have seen a worthless savior, someone who couldn't even save himself. If he could save himself, get down from the cross. You know, they shouted that while he was dying. He looked like a rejected Messiah. He looked like a failed savior. And yet God took that stone, whether it was Joseph or Israel or Jesus himself, that stone which the people rejected, and he used that to build his house and his future. He used that to become his chief cornerstone. God often uses that which we think is the least likely thing to become the most precious and sacred thing. And this is something in verse 23. It's the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. When God does this type of thing. It's a reminder to me to 
to consider as we go through difficulty, as we go through like Joseph in that pit or Israel in slavery or Jesus on the cross, and we think about the misery that we're going through, you never actually know that rejected stone could become something very precious and something honorable and something worthwhile and meaningful to God. Verse 26, and by the way, that's also, that's one of those passages. I didn't just make that up. That's in the New Testament. Uh, they quote that passage about Jesus. Uh, they do the same thing in verse 26 as Jesus is entering Jerusalem and uh, as Jesus is uh, going to the temple. It says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, that idea of blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord uh, is from this psalm, but it also... Uh, represents Jesus as well, who came in the name of the Lord to Jerusalem in that uh, Passover weekend. And as that happened, the Lord, verse 27, has given us light. Uh, It might have looked like darkness, but the Lord made light out of it, as he does each day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you are alive today, today is a day that God has made, and he's given it to you. Today, there is something to thank God for and to rejoice in. Today, there is reason to hope and to trust and to give thanks for the salvation of God that we experience now and for the salvation of God that we experience in the age to come. God is a Savior unlike any other. God is worthy of our trust, and the reason why is because he is good, verse 29, and his steadfast love is everlasting. And as we bring this Thanksgiving uh, service to a close, we do want to offer an invitation to anyone who's here who would like to take hold of the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ. You could have your sins washed away tonight, and that would really give you something to thank God for. You could have your sins washed away and live anew for him from this day forward. If you have the need, please come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing. Let's dismiss this evening in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that for many years, many parts, long-term parts of our lives that you have given us many times the first day of the week, that we can come before you, that we can thank you and be thankful for the greatest sacrifice that was ever made. And Father, this evening as we have a Thanksgiving service, we ask that you help us to look back on the beginnings of the country that we live in and the society that we're a part of and to realize that the founders of this country looked to you and they realized that that what we have, the thankfulness that we should be showing and all the many blessings that we have came from you. And as time went by, the people in charge of our country were continually being aware of, of you and what you gave to us and have given to us and it, they even proclaimed a day of thanksgiving. The thanksgiving was to you for giving us all of the wonderful blessings that we have. Father, I ask that this evening you'll help us to remember that, that you'll help our leaders to remember that as we go forward and as we have one more opportunity this week, if, you, if it's your will that we have it, that we will have a day that we can be thankful not only for our many blessings and for our families, but also for the country and for the people who thought to look to you and to be thankful to you for giving that to us. We ask that you'll bless us this evening, help us have a, a good night's rest, and to do that, what we possibly can to, to be your hands and feet in the next few days. In your son's name we pray. Amen.